everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne. Welcome to the ASCA Podcast. What's up, everybody? Joseph Coyne here, Australian Strength and Conditioning Podcast time. We've got Desmond Ryan on the podcast today. First of all, Des is Irish, so you're going to be listening to a wonderful Irish accent this whole conversation we're having with him. Second of all, he is the head of Sports Science and Medical Science at the Arsenal Football Club over in the English Premier League. So that means he deals with players from as young as age six all the way up to under 23. And he's formerly worked in Irish rugby, but I'll let him tell you all more about his background and how he got to be in the position he is in now. Uh, but we talk some wonderful things. We talk different qualities between the football codes, i.e. between rugby and soccer or football. We talk about communicating with coaches, trying to find their inspiration, their influences, so you understand where they're coming from. You have some common language to talk with them. We also spend a lot of the podcast time speaking about academies, how you set up an academy, how you develop the academy, what you might have in the academy, um, problems with a lot of academies. And as part of that, we talk about a real hot topic at the moment, which is early specialization for youth athletes. Is it a bad thing? Uh, it seems to be so at the moment, but maybe there's there's other ways of looking at things. And definitely Des has got some really interesting interesting thoughts on that, and I really enjoyed those. But in that sort of part of things, we speak about the athlete development, biological maturation, and not just uh, physical maturation, but technical, tactical, psychological maturation. We talk about getting buy-in across an institution, not just buy-in with coaches, but if you're at a football club, you've got to deal with with uh, admin staff, you've got to deal with other stuff. How do you get buy-in or how do you get uh, everything working working with the decision makers there in that club? And lastly, we speak a lot about the sort of work-life balance and career progressions for a strength conditioning coach. And these might be appropriate for any um, any professional involved in physical preparation or even, even teaching, physiotherapists, coaches, but that was really interesting, his thoughts on that as well. So without further ado, we'll get into the interview and uh, we'll let Des uh, entertain us for the next hour and a bit. Mate, I, I want to start um, right at the start and tell us, uh, that, well, first of all, thanks for being on this podcast, but then tell us, tell us about like, how you got into this line of work. What, what got you started? Um, where did it begin? Um, obviously, it began in Ireland somewhere, but, but where, did, where did it begin and how did it evolve into what you're doing now? Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks for the invite. We, we'll have a good chat anyway, um, even if nobody listens into the podcast. So um, my story, it's, these are often the boring parts of podcasts, but I think there is a little hidden story here that'll, that'll strike a chord with, with younger conditioners. So... Um, at the very start, yeah, I graduated from college, I don't know, about 97. Um, I got a job straight away. So it's not like that these days. It was much easier. There was much less university courses. And I, I worked uh, in the rugby province of where I'm from, in Connacht, in West Ireland, with young players, the under-18s, the under-20s. Uh, and after one year, totally too early, I wasn't prepared for it, I got the job with the adult professional rugby team. No, it was to do with cutbacks. <laughs> I was a cheap option. Um, but thankfully, I had an excellent mentor, Dr. Liam Hennessy, who was in charge of Irish rugby. So I had him as a sounding board, as a mentor, 
um, every week. And that helped me because I was thrown in the deep end totally. But that's a good thing at times. And he's still my mentor to this day. So I was with the adult team for oh, nearly nine years. And during that time, uh, I worked with the Ireland A team. I worked with the Irish national rugby team. Mm -hmm. So some would think now that was the pinnacle, the best thing you can do in rugby if you're living in Ireland. And I enjoyed it for sure. But around about 2006, 2007, I was having good, honest chats with my mentor and my boss. And I was at ease that I could say, I'm not that stimulated. I'm bordering on a little bit bored. Every week is very similar, training, match, speed session, gym session, another match. And I said, whoa, it, I'm just being honest. It's, it's, not, it, I'm, it's not ticking my boxes. Mm -hmm. And he said, no problem, Des. Uh, we have a huge project coming up, all the academies. We need a manager of the conditioners. We need to set up the, the, the philosophy, um, the pathway. We need to... Uh, educate coaches there's a big position coming up and I went fantastic sounds good when can I start and he said no no Des you know nothing about it so he met me <laughs> study young players uh, I had a base knowledge but I really needed much more depth and breadth so for about a year and a half I was studying that as well as my full-time job with the with the adult professional team and finally I moved into that role um, and I really enjoyed that. So I became a manager. I had to continue developing as a manager, working with my mentor. Um, I, I uh, educated coaches, ran coaching courses, developed a philosophy with a lot of conditioners, um, and managed international teams and their support from sports science, sports medicine, and really enjoyed that. And that's my yeah. true vocation. And I called myself a career academy coach. And from there, Really loved that job, uh, but an opportunity came up in Arsenal. Um, I could build the sports science medicine department pretty much from scratch. That was exciting. That's what my mentor did in the past. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and as well as that, uh, soccer, stroke football, is one of the few sports you have meaningful access with players from under nine all the way through to, to young adulthood. Uh -huh. So that was the real draw for me uh, to move to Arsenal and really enjoying that as well. Yeah, cool, cool, mate, cool. And uh, look, uh, like, like I mentioned on the, uh, uh, when we went, like had a little introduction before and, and so on, um, I was out at Arsenal just the, uh, just the other week and, uh, and um, Darren Burgess, who I was visiting out there, actually gave you the biggest rap of, of, I've heard for, for a long time. He was, he was like, Des is, is such a great person to have as part of our academy um, because his interest area. Most most of these people they want to get jobs in the in the full full team or in the top team that sort of thing. His interest area is in developing young people. Um, that's that's where his passion lies, and it's plainly obvious. And it was it was really interesting, and it, and it made me made me think of like how how much of a nice fit um, you you were there. But uh, mate, um, besides giving you a little pat on the back, I want to talk about the next thing is. is we, you've worked with these two field sports, rugby and uh, soccer slash football. Yes. Um, tell us about, and obviously heavy in the sports science and sports medicine part of things, tell us about those different physical qualities uh, 
between those two sports, how you develop them or how you and your role think about them in developing young men or young women um, to, to, to succeed in those sports? Yes, I, I, I was kind of dreading this question because it's very simple, but it's also very complex. So, so the basic way I look at it, looking back uh, at the two sports, is, is rugby, I put it, it's 70% physical, 30% skill. Now, I'm going to be critiqued by people by saying that, but I want to keep it basic. And then football, I'd say it's 70% skill and 30% physical. So that gives a little idea of the contrast between two sports that I noticed. And uh, obviously rugby would be a little bit less continuous and a lot more contact, whereas football would be a lot more continuous, less contact, but different contact. Uh, The injury epidemiology would be different between the two sports. Um, I'd also summarise it in a basic level that, that rugby top conditioning is essential. You won't have a career. You won't have a professional career unless your strength condition is at a top level. It's, it's an essential. Whereas football, uh, soccer, you won't be the best football player in the world without high-quality strength conditioning. But you could survive as a professional footballer with low investment in strength conditioning. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that's a, a sweeping statement and a, a dangerous statement, but just emphasizing it in a basic level. Um, and that can contribute to the different cultures in both sports. Uh, rugby, you're pushing the guys out of the gym. You're pushing the guys away from extra physical work. Football, you're encouraging them into the gym. You're encouraging them into doing extra physical work. So that's kind of understandable given the proportions of, of uh, physical stroke skill. Mm-hmm. Now, We'll chat about it a little bit later, but the cultural change we wanted to create where the, the, the soccer player loved conditioning, saw the true value in it, uh, took ownership in it, was important for us. But if I look in the, the football soccer community in general across, across the world, it isn't the highest priority. It's important, but it would be a little less important in rugby, uh, given those things. Um, but it, it's, it's way more complex than that. In, in rugby, you've got scrum halves, props, second rows, all very different needs for the player. Similarly, in soccer, you've got the goalkeeper, full-backs, central midfielder, um, box-to-box midfielders. Even in one position, it varies, and you've got to help them. But it all is boiled down to the individual, and each individual has specific needs. Uh, each individual has a different training age, and we've got to look at the individual, We've got to look at the position and maybe in the journey of the young player, his position will change based on feedback from physical, technical, tactical psychology. Psychology. Um, so it's very complex, but can be looked at as very simple. Sure. So that, that, that's a brief answer. We, we, we could go on for a, a, a week, a, a weekend workshop, uh, do real in-depth studies, but uh, after the individual, um, like even midfield, you could have a Kante, a su- supreme athlete, a, a Podba, uh, an Aaron Ramsey, a great skill levels, great physical levels. But then you could have a, a Modric or a Santi Carlozola, not so brilliant physically, but fantastic skills. And then you could look for someone with both, like R- R- Cristiano Ronaldo. Fantastic skills, fantastic physical. That's what we're trying to get at the end of the day. But there's a place for everyone. I think on a on a rugby pitch and a football pitch. 
Sure, sure. It's, it's a great um, conundrum, isn't it? I'm going to use the word conundrum. There's a big word for me today. Um, it's, it's a great, yeah. uh, great like thinking of positionality versus individuality. One is in how you're going to prepare somebody. Uh, and then two, about the like sport or uh, skill in sport is obviously king. You can have people that uh, train like Tarzan, play like Jane, that, those type of individuals. And, and obviously it might matter more for some sports than others. And then, like you said, maybe it matters more for soccer or in football than it does for, that's for rugby. Um, how, what then have you, have you kind of implemented or, or tried to implement to try and try and bolster that desire for the next generation coming through to want to do the physical training, to want to be the best in the world physically um, or, or to marry that, how do you marry that desire with the physical development with also making sure they're getting enough skill development as well in the sport? Yeah, yeah. So that, that starts off with the, the philosophy. So the playing philosophy. And in football, we have a strong, highly technical playing philosophy that, that we aim to develop the player for the first team. So... Um, Working with coaches is important in that relationship. Um, and, and the way I put it, I, I always have three rules when working with coaches. Uh, you've got to be polite, you've got to be objective, and you've got to tell the truth. Um, and it's, it's, it's my role and the department's role to educate the coaches and, and not confuse the coach in my area. But equally... It's also important for the, the coach to educate us and not confuse us as well, is how I describe it with the coach. Mm-hmm. And then with those three rules of being mannerly, be objective, be polite, uh, but telling the truth, I should say, that helps build that relationship with the coach. That helps the understanding of the philosophy. That helps appreciation on both sides. Why you need the physical windows of development and recovery and, and, and education. and how that can be joined in with the coach's uh, technical, tactical development, both on the pitch and in the education as well with the young player. So I, I saw it work really well back in the Irish rugby, where we had uh, head of performance, Liam Hennessy, um, a person working with the academies, myself. You'd have um, technical director um, who would be in charge of the, the technical model. And then you also had the academy manager. So the four of us worked worked very well together, I, I do think. So the four of us contributed, as did many, many people, to the Irish rugby long-term player development model. And integrated into that was the technical model, how we want to play. But the four people were in continuous discussion, and there was many, many other contributors. But then there was good understanding both sides on the importance of physical and how the physical can help the technical and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the technical model was integrated in all coaching courses, all education. So the, the conditioners understand the technical model and the long-term player development model and vice versa with the coaches. Mm-hmm. And then with that education, with the understanding comes good, good creation of, of content and programming where it's balanced and fair uh, towards the end product. And, and other examples, um, 
over my time in Arsenal, we we had uh, a Dutch coach. So I needed to build a relationship with him quick. I had many chats with him. Okay, where's his influences and his education? And he mentioned to me Raymond Verhagen. So I had to go study Raymond uh, of my own accord. Uh, webinars, books, I attended his course. Uh, I wouldn't be a huge fan now, but it was important for me to to learn that before I interpreted. Uh, and then that helped me communicate with the coach better, using Raymond's language, like actions. Mm-hmm. And then once I could understand his background in physical development, I could guide him why we do what we do and help his understanding. Now, I think he appreciated me going through the effort to study in uh, what was at his time the main methodology used in, in Holland for physical development to guide him towards the Arsenal method. And he also had contributions towards uh, the physical development in Arsenal from his background. So I'm, I'm, I'm waffling on a bit here now, but it's, it's a good starting point, the relationship with the coach, the understanding of playing philosophy and how the physical development philosophy fits into that can help a good proportion of those windows for development in physical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, mate, I, I, I love that. I love the, the hey, the, the speaking to the coach, who are your inspirations for coaching? Who are your major influences? And then, and then you as the conditioner going out and studying them so you can speak the same language, so to speak. Um, and then just you asking that, gives them a feeling of oh, this guy wants to help me. You know what I mean? It, it's a, it's a automatic, um, like a, a bonding trust type thing there, right there. And then, uh, it's great. It really is. Um, it's yeah, I, I, I'm going through it at the moment as well. We have a new Academy manager next year. He's called Per Metesecker. He, he won the world cup with Germany. Uh, he's a player at the moment. He's retiring and becoming the Academy manager. So we're spending a good bit of time. I'm digging into his, training history when he was with Germany, mm. his clubs in Germany before this, who are the influences, getting to understand that. I've met his, his trainer of the past, just so we can have a common language and build uh, a relationship and, mm. and copper fasten that philosophy together. Yeah, cool, cool. Mate, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you, we've spoken about the academy, and tell me, tell me first of all, just give us a brief description. When when do these guys, when do the guys or girls, as a, if it's females as well, when do they come into the academy? What age? Um, I know you mentioned nine years old, maybe before um, for some of the kids. Um, and then tell us about how it sort of what sort of happens in that process, um, and then tell us about some of the unique challenges you might have. Uh, and some people might think, oh, there will be no challenges with the uh, Arsenal Academy because it will be so well-equipped, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure there's, in, in any line of, line of work, even, even at this end, there will be a massive challenges. So tell us, like, brief, brief description. Tell us the sort of flow of what happens and then um, what, what are things that, are, that are, have, have really given you, um, had to work hard on. Yeah, so there's... Um, players from under nine all the way to under 23. And you're talking about 180 players, uh, plus or minus, depending on trialists and loans. Uh, so there's the first challenge. That's a hell of a lot of players. Mm. Now, thankfully, we're well-resourced in Arsenal. And, and over time, the last five years, the, the department has grown. So we'd have 
um, eight full-time conditioners, four um, full-time physios, 10 part-time physios. Uh, we've got two full-time psychologists, uh, two part-time doctors, two nutritionists, myself as head of the department. Uh, so thankfully, with that support of the club, uh, that helps us cater for those large numbers. Sure. Now, but as, as well as that, there's, there's a pre-academy uh, of players aged um, six, seven and eight in yeah. seven regional centres around London. So mm. we can have a good chat about specialisation, early specialisation, etc. Mm. That's a, a, a good topic, a hot topic. And then uh, we have the players at the moment from under 13 up. Uh, they train mainly in the evenings and play games on the weekend. But we also have them one day released from school where they come into us and they do their some schooling with us and they train with us. And then uh, under 18, under 23, they're pretty much full-time. They do education, uh, but they do it on site with us, so they're full-time. So that makes it easy to manage the, the programming, the content, the development. Um, so challenges. I, I think as a community, now I'll talk less so Arsenal, um, and maybe in all sports, underinvestment in academy is a challenge. And underinvestment in academy leads to low experience, early career academy coaches in probably senior positions. Mm-hmm. And that results in high turnover. Mm-hmm. And, the, and then I'm, I don't think the people in the positions at academy, if they're low experience, early career, are prepared for the complexity of academies where you have to um, manage many different teams many different stages of development, many different stages of biological, psychological, technical, tactical maturation, and parents on top of that, um, uh, the complex world of, of growth and maturation. Uh, it's, it's way more complex than one adult professional team. Sure. But there's very early career, young, inexperienced people there. Um, then the young and inexperienced person we will find it more challenging to create development and change with the key decision makers. Um, and it's an area I feel passionate about that uh, all sports should grow to career academy coaches where people are more experienced and, and later in their career. And there's some wonderful examples out there like Dave Fagan and Leinster Rugby who are a, a conveyor belt to talent. And uh, that, that filled their first team that are European champions three times. Uh, and it's a very economical and productive model. So if you invest in academy, you get a lot back out of it when you do. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it really does. Challenges. Challenges they're, they're, I'm struggling to come up with too many because yeah. it is enjoyable. Yeah. Um, it, it is very enjoyable and rewarding. Yeah. So the, for the listeners out there, you can't obviously see this. You're listening to it, the podcast. But when uh, when Des is talking about these, the the academy, his face just lights up, and it's uh, it's it's really good to see. Like he, he obviously enjoys what he's doing, and it's, it's really neat watching that that type of uh, passion come through. Um, mate, we we had a little. You touched on that early specialization. Let's segue straight into that. Let's uh, let's delve into early specialization. Sure. Um, and so I've got, like, I, as I mentioned to you, I was in China for a little while. 
Um, and I worked uh, or I was in a training base that had the National Gymnastics, National Diving Program um, in that training base where you, you'll get kids as young as sort of again, maybe like your early Arsenal people. But if there is no early specialisation, you probably won't win a gold medal in those sports. Um, so it's I always I do take that stuff sometimes with a grain of salt, and I really love to hear people's different people's opinions on it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear: is it an issue with soccer? Is it maybe what have you seen in your experience? Is it maybe team sport specific where early specialisation is a problem? Um, t- tell us tell us your thoughts on it. L- love to love to hear them. I love to. I'll, I'll chat away. So, yes, categorically, early specialization, uh, the research has shown, is bad. Okay, I, I can't deny that. Uh, in terms of participation later on, injuries, um, etc. And, and categorically, it shows that early sampling, late specialization is good in relation to injuries and participation um, and so on. Okay, so there's two ends of the spectrum, two options. But I like more options. And and we're trying to create something even better than the last two options. So excellence does take time, especially in high-skill sports, mm-hmm. like um, soccer that I work in, like the Irish sport of hurling, like tennis, like diving, what you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So excellence does take time, and we need that time with them. And that will lean towards specialising early. And so we're very focused on, on coming up with a better option. So we have a position statement on multi-sport. And we encourage multi-sport from the young age, age groups. And it, it gets narrow and narrow and narrow until 16 when the player specialises with us. They, when they graduate into the under-18 team. Now, we want to give more to them. To make it better. So what we give is that encouragement to do multi-sport. We have a curriculum with a lot of very experienced uh, academy strength and conditioners. Now that curriculum gives them physical literacy. That curriculum gives them content, contact and good content where they can improve and become better. We also give uh, 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 sessions of multi-sport. We have every piece of equipment Aussie rules, ball, you name it, uh, for every sport in the world and high variation, and that's, that's periodized through the year. And it's also linked in with the session the coaches are running. Um, like if it's finding space, we may play Gaelic football, leading into the football session uh, based on finding space. Um, we also have, I think, which is somewhat unique to us, uh, a curriculum of cooperative games. Now, especially at the age groups of 10, 11, that helps them cooperate with their, with their friend. Uh, games like grabbing a hold of his arm, okay, us two got to communicate and catch that guy over there. They're not very good at that communication and cooperation, and that encourages that and accelerates that development, we feel, without any imperial ev- evidence, but we may have in the future. Then I think uh, also the management of the player in terms of their workloads. And helping them through that delicate growth phase and monitoring all those workloads and those growth uh, developments, uh, I think, is a higher level than just play a lot of different sports. Mm. Okay, a lot of that is going on by accident. Uh, and then, yeah, it does work out better than just specialising in one sport. 
But if we come up with a hybrid, something even better, where we give them even more, we give them the cooperative games, the curriculum of physical literacy, and the experiences of sampling many sports, and we manage the sampling and it gradually gets narrow, but we also facilitate more time in those wonderful windows where the neuromuscular system is plastic and pliable, where they can master those skills and they're ingrained for life. That's what we're trying to do. Um, can we prove that it's better than, than the others? No. Uh, will we have a PhD on the subject pretty soon? Yes. Will we be able to share our, our findings in the future? Yes, we're very open in that regard, and we will be. So it is a complex world, and also we're in the competitive environment. So as you said, you're, you're diver athletes, they, they won't win a gold medal unless they do it. And we have to differentiate between participation and performance. And they're two important areas. In my old job in Irish rugby, participation and performance were pretty much equal. In this job, it's about performance. Now, we, we, we follow the principles uh, uh, of, of making sure the players, we encourage them to be active for life. Um, but at the end of the day, we're trying to make players for the first team. So it's a fascinating area, and, and there's our, our brief thoughts on it. And, mm -hmm. and at the conference, I'll be sharing example, video examples of those types of sessions and, and how we fit it into the week. Uh, but I think they will work out better. I, I, we have our injury audit information that shows injuries are decreasing through the age groups uh, year on year, where we will be plateauing pretty soon. Um, we're looking back on graduates, um, and a lot of our graduates have been with us for a long time. Thus, excellence takes time. Um, but there's also the competitive development of it. In London, there's I don't, uh, 11, 12 professional football teams. They're all after uh, the, the one player or the top players. So um, that encourages uh, selecting these players early. Um, so yeah, we, we naturally lean towards um, the majority of the work in the one sport, but we encourage multi-sport and we provide extra as I described, while they're with us. Yeah, cool, cool. And so I, I think now would be a real, really appropriate time just to ask you about when you think those windows are where, say, the neuromuscular system or um, the, the nervous system is, is particularly elastic or when, it, when is it particularly receptive to being uh, exposed to different skills like for, the, for the coaches in academies yeah. or in institutes or, or even the... the T uh, team sport coaches that they have to take like under 13 soccer and under 15s uh, rugby union you know what I mean that are listening mm -hmm. um, tell us about those periods is it based on actual ages or is it based on maturation um, and how quick how, when they're going through like puberty that type of stuff like I'd love to hear your thoughts on that oh yeah I, I'll dive into that and I, and I should have been careful in my on my words so I used window so People will straight away say, oh, no, you're using the long-term player development model by Ishtan Bali. And I go, well, no, we, we take a lot of good things to it, but we're not married to it. We, it's not the model we follow. And what I, I like to, to, to think, well I, well, I know everyone in the department has a very good understanding of um, the different models, frameworks of long-term player development. So that's the starting point, good education. So... 
we would have a, a decent understanding of, of the long-term athletic development model, of Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver's youth physical development model, of Jan Cote's development model for sports participation, uh, of Goblin's model from Australia, uh, the integrated framework on optimising of sport and athletic development, if I remember that correctly, and then other newer models uh, like the Rocky Road crew from the University of Central Lancaster with, with, with Collins, Dave Collins. And I, I'll keep it separate for a while. A good influence of mine, uh, Kelvin Giles and, and movement dynamics. So I, I, I would describe it as a methodology rather than a model or a framework. So you've got all those different models and that helps education and understanding. But I'm a little bit frustrated with them all because they kind of spend their time critiquing each other. I'm not going to name any names, but even to the extent of little editorials flying around the place, slagging off one model, more of the same. Um, and, and I get frustrated by that because all those ones I mentioned, their, their, their emphasis comes from certain sectors like, like psychology or, or the physical or social psychology or real-world experience. And I think I would love to see a time where they all get into a room with each other and agree, and with practitioners, more important, and agree on the best principles for developing a player over long term. It's a new, uh, it's, it's a new industry, um, and, and the dust needs to settle in it. And, and, and that's why... Uh, and I wouldn't even say they're, they're new, actually. No, I need to pause there because there was an excellent book in 1969 by Dietrich Hare on the principles of sports training. And he all pretty much said everything that all the people above were saying. And he summarized what they got up to in East Germany. So we'll push aside a certain part of what they got up to in East Germany. But there is some great things like multi-sport schools, measure and growth etc long before any of these models frameworks were published so there's not much of it is new um but everyone wants to be the first person to come up with the best model and the best framework but i'm a big advocate of people working together and taking the best bits from all of those and that's what we did in irish rugby that's what we do in in arsenal as long as well as add our own twist to it so we we published a paper recently um and it's called Developing World-Class Soccer Players, an example of an academy physical development program. And that's, well, it's published ahead of print in the NSCA journal. And will be, I think it's coming out in a, in the World Cup uh, special edition. Great. So that's us sharing Great. exactly our, our, our philosophy approach and programming with everyone. Because academy is very, for me, open book. Let's share, let's learn, let's give back to the, to the youth. So we, we took the best bits from those and that is our own, as I say. Now, we have our own uh, approach to physical development of player. And I think this is very important for conditioners, especially with young players. They should have a, an approach or, or a philosophy. So I'd like to think if you spoke to every person in, in our department, they would say the same thing. Uh, if you spoke to a coach, they'd say it in a simpler term. If you spoke to a parent and a player, they'd say it in a simpler term. But our, our approach is the arrow approach. Getting to the next level as quickly and efficiently as possible. There's four key pillars to that. Functional competence, good mobility and stability, then moving on to more advanced strength. Uh, 
mature movement skills, getting to a mature level of movement skill and then moving on to more advanced speed type activities. Because we're a highly technical club, getting fit through the game in the majority and planning and periodization, making sure the player doesn't do too much or too little. Now, underneath that, uh, this is why I, I kept Kelvin Giles to the side. We apply a Comsey-based approach, very similar to his own ones. And we have basic level one, two, three, four. Level one, how well, not how much. Level two, how well and how much. Level three, how well, how much, how fast. And level four, elite level. So we apply a Comsey-based approach, uh, following that, 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 that approach, the arrow approach. And there's another bit we added to it ourselves. Now, I'll get on to, to maturation as well, but it's important to go through the philosophy first. Mullinoga August Chukishi is written into our approach. Now, that's Irish. I don't expect people to know that. I don't expect the players to know that. Because what it means is praise youth and they will flourish. So that's emphasized to the conditioners, the physios, the nutritionists, everybody to encourage the players when they deserve it. And then the young player immediately grows in confidence. Immediately the relationship grows. And then there's a big brother, uh, older uncle in my case, type of relationship that I want with the player and the conditioner. So the trust is there. Now, once that's there, you can achieve anything. So that's built into our, our philosophy. Now, the very important area of, of biological maturation. So we use three methods at the start, measuring the height uh, regularly, the Mirwald method, which is the seated height, standing height uh, method, and the Kamish-Roach method, which is the parents' heights and the players' heights method. So we found over time, looking back over our, our figures, that the Kamish-Roach method suits us best. And with that, we have, say, for example, the under-14 squad. That, that shows percentage of adult height. Within the under-14 squad, we could have a player that's 96% of adult height, well, we do, and another player who's 86% of adult height. So in the areas of programming, selection, and management of the players, they should be totally different, but they're in the same age group. So that player that's 86% of adult height, he should be really compared to the players at the age group below. And the player who's 96%, he should compare to the players above. Now, we can move the players up and down at the age groups in training and in games based on maturation, uh, physical, but we can't neglect technical, tactical, psychological maturation as well. And then we know also the rate of growth of a player by taking those measurements. So we could know a player could be growing as much as 11 centimetres a year or, or down to just one or two centimetres a year. So that gives us a little little flag. So if a player is around 92% of adult height, slap bang in the middle of that growth spurt. If the player is growing at that rapid rate, we've got to keep a close eye on them. Now we take the policy of don't change anything unless there's a symptom or two. So if the player is, is very uncoordinated, a little bit of soreness going on in the knee, a uh, bit down in the mood, we chat and we adapt the programme to help them through that delicate phase. For example, we could have a player who's getting early signs of, of growth-related issues. Um, the team on that night could be doing 45 minutes of athletic development. He's shown those signs. We adapt his program. Then we keep him from the on-field session for another 20 minutes with us where we do coordinative work. 
And then he still does technical work. And then he goes home. So by doing that, we reduce the workload on pitch. Uh, we increase the coordinated work and adapt the exercises not to overload that issue. Thus, keeping those overuse issues to the side for longer and managing them, using those um, maturation assessments. So that's, that's a long-winded description of our approach, our, our programming, and how we use maturation. But there's an excellent article by Dr. Sean Cummings that goes through biobanding and all the different methods of, of assessing maturation, which I'd recommend uh, to everyone. Biobanding and team sports, I think it's called, by Dr. Sean Cummings. And then we've, we've published our own article overviewing our, our methodology. Is a brief overview there. There. Yeah, that's great. That's great. The um, just measuring the height regularly and uh, and knowing what's going on and, and and seeing like how they're responding because sometimes like if you if you don't if you don't assess sometimes you're guessing with with kids and and mm. those are crucial periods in their development and um, I think it's a wonderful approach. So we you've talked we've talked a little bit about measuring measuring the heights. Um, and we've talked about a few other sciencey things in terms of like these models of physical development. Tell us about how, yeah. like, what do you guys actually do for sports science there? Um, that's uh, not classified or top secret. Um, uh, uh, what is uh, what no, is no. what what is uh, what 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 have you learned from using sports science, like both the good and the bad of it? Um, and what have you seen in the field? How does it fit into your to your program? Like obviously you're measuring height and you'll have calculations based if they're high. Um, but yeah, t- tell us more about that, please. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I'm going to go off with a long-winded answer again. Now I think, sorry, but I love these long-winded answers. To, they're great. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. When I first came to London, I met lots of different people from different clubs. I actually did a, a tour of the clubs just to get an understanding of the the community, and I met. A physical preparation coach, sports scientist, a football scientist, a football conditioning coach, a movement specialist, skill acquisitionist, strength conditioning coach, fitness coach, and and a few others. And I got very confused. And I was going, what the hell is going on here? What are all these jobs? And and I asked them their qualifications and their experience. And basically, they just did the same thing. Yeah. So they, they train the players, they monitor the players, they, they do program design. And the look back on the monitoring information, it's, a, it's the same thing. They did the job of a strength and conditioner. So I wanted to keep it very simple so people understand who this new department was. And I called everybody a strength and conditioner. And in academy, uh, I think all the strength and conditioners should be generalists. Because there's so many players and there's so many things to be done, it needs all hands on deck. Um and eventually they become a specialist. I think you should be a generalist before you're a specialist, but that's, that's just myself. And then when we have a, a specific question, I think we apply a PhD to it. So that's just a long-winded answer on, on who's implementing the sports science. So, yeah, we do implement sports science. We've got, uh, crazy as it may seem, we've got GPS uh, from under 13 all the way up. Um, we've got a 3D markerless system that we have a PhD working on. Because uh, we have a great interest in movement and how it changes through the the phases of growth, uh, we've we've got um, opto jumps. We've got a force x force plates that we use for profiling opto jump for monitoring with the reactive strength index. Uh, we have um, hamstring eccentric exercise assessment tools. 
I don't want to say products because I don't want to promote any products. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got groin strength assessment tools. Um, we use whole body cryotherapy. We've uh, a whole body cryotherapy on site. And, but it boils down to methodology, not technology, as I always say to the coaches. It boils down to that relationship. Is that information useful? And, but it's not always me talking to the coaches. One of the suggestions that came from the coach was a paperless gym. And I think this is kind of sports science technology. I, I was a bit apprehensive because I'm, I'm older and I'm used to diaries and writing in what you lift and how much you lift and how long you lift it for and so on. And I like the discipline of the guy who's keeping the diary handy, but, but I have to move at the times. So the, the younger conditioner suggested the paperless gym. I was appre apprehensive about it, but we got 18 iPads. We got it built in. And I was so surprised at how quickly the young players, I shouldn't have been, but how quickly the young players had, uh, embraced it and how quickly they flicked into their program and put their exercise in. That made life so much easier. And that's what technology should do. It should make life easier uh, for the conditioners. They did the program up in their office, straight down to the iPads. Players filled in what they did. It's straight back up to the conditioner. Quick little edit for the next program. Do a quick look back on all the workloads, the PBs, the amounts lifted. Uh, at the flick of a switch, not a big, huge Excel sheet that's a bit clunky. Uh, it was fantastic, I must say. So those things should make life easy. Just like the monitoring tools should make life easy. Just like uh, the 3D system should break new ground as well. We want, everyone looks at speed, strength, power, endurance, uh, body composition, but we want to look at movement. And now we've an objective marker. Um, we can do 19 different movements in about 10, 15 minutes uh, of a player. And I can, I can challenge the coach, okay, let's see this movement improve. I can also monitor the players over time. We'll be publishing a paper pretty soon that looks at speed, power, strength, yeah, they go up uh, linearly. Uh, through pre-growth spurt, during growth spurt, post-growth spurt. But there's a bit of arrested development and movement during the growth spurt. And we've got to help the player through that. So we want to be able to measure it as they go through it. Um, so, yeah, technology, um, it, it should make life easier. And it, it does. Uh, the examples I throw out there, uh, it should give good objective markers, which it does with those, those tools I've mentioned. And it should aid coaching, like GPS, and it's used practically. Uh, we don't look at enormous number of metrics. We look at, uh, at a few. Then we can look at the squad as a whole in their session. We can look at an individual in a session. It helps the conditioner and coach plan together. Uh, it's just turning the pit session into a gym session. We've got a few training variables now, and we can gradually overload it. Um, so, yeah, it should make life better and easier, technology but it's methodology above technology. That's a great saying, great saying, methodology oh, above technology. Yeah. Um, and that, that movement stuff is so important. We, like uh, it's, you can measure stuff in the gym really easy. You can measure, say, a 30-meter sprint really easy with a bit of lights or a bit, some timing gates, and you can measure stuff out on the field. But like moving specific, measuring specific movement skills, like how well a player can perform a crossover step or how well they shuffle to cut or like that type of stuff. Um, that's, that's really, uh, it's, it's new ground in, in sports science. And I think um, that those like the 3D Viacoms and, and that's where, because uh, that's what sports are made up of. And if you can, if you can improve that, then yeah, you're golden. 
you're dead right. And, and I think as a community, we've slowed down in that area a little bit. It's become a little bit uncool because of perceptions of things like the FMS and the limitations of them. Mm. And people are making loads of money out of them. And no, that's not the way forward. But we shouldn't look at it as a particular company, a particular method. We should look at it as an area, just like what you said there. It's, it's just like speed, power, endurance. Mm. And, and I think that's going to be the future. Hence, we have a 3D person, a PhD, I should say. And we used Viacom and the markerless system and, and dairy. And the PhD is comparing the two because we've got to make sure what we're measuring is, is, is right and proper. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating area. And, and we can be slowed down again by, by discussions on movement variability. Uh, but the world we are in now, we're looking at, at horrible movement. Okay, we don't want that horrible movement. We want mature level movement. Uh, and would you change the way Brian O'Driscoll does a step? It doesn't look perfect, but it's hugely effective. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, talking about really ugly movement, making it into intermediate or mature level. And I, I may be wrong, but I think as a community, we, we've put the handbrake on a bit because of coolness or lack of coolness. And I think we need to l- release the handbrake and get back into that movement area. Um, the sooner the better, especially for the young player. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, and it's the applied movement too, I think. It's it's the movements that they're actually doing in the game. Like, obviously, if you've got your basic primal patterns, like, uh, say, Calvin Giles, squat, bend, push, pull, lunge, twist yep. type thing. But then you've got the stuff like, say, uh, um, the Welshman. I, uh, I'm just having a mind blank right now. Game speed. Ian Jeffries. Like, his... Ian his Jeffries. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that sort of syllabus for, for the movements, the actualization, transition movements, all that type of stuff. How well do people actually perform those? And, and if you can measure that, then you can, you can go, well, look, you're a standard deviation below what we see in our academy at this age. We, yes. uh, we want to make that a bit better. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mate, uh, so we've talked about the sports science. I want to get back onto this culture and culture management and implementing change. And obviously you went from a sport where there was say 70% physical, 30% uh, skill. And now you've gone into this flip that's been flipped around on you with, with the, with the football says soccer. How have you have besides that, that wonderful example you gave of like researching the coaches inspirations and their influences, how have you um, how have you managed culture? How have you implemented changes that you wanted? Uh, how have you got that uh, got that really trendy word right now? Buy in from people. Yeah, I'll, I'll chat away about it, um, and and I have a few rules of thumb. So the first one is choose your projects wisely. So. You're not going to step into a club that the committee, board, have no interest in, in sports science, strength, conditioning, uh, that there isn't an opportunity to get that buy-in. That would be a complete waste of energy. So you, you choose your projects wisely. You don't go on a crusade that's going to be impossible. And then uh, when you step in, uh, again, I go back to those three rules of mannerly, be objective and tell the truth. They don't come back to bite you, I don't think. They, they help you. So when we first stepped into um, the, the football club, um, at academy level, there was, there was small numbers. But we were going to bring big numbers of sports science and sports medicine people in. So in our, in our department meeting, we have 
certain sayings that we go back to. So for the first uh, period, the saying was kill people with kindness. So if the groundsmen needed something lifted, if there was a delivery for the facilities people, we helped out. So people didn't go, who's these strange people in white coats, these scientists, and the large number of them? What are they doing here? But people would be more inclined to say, geez, they're very sound, the way they helped out, and they help out the facilities and the groundsmen. They're decent people. Let's get to know them. So that was the first uh, part of it. Then in those early phases as well, uh, my advice to people, my rule of thumb would be audit everything. Injury audits, good quality. Fitness results testing, good quality. Uh, measure and video and, and record every success and every failure. And start from the start. So you've got that to go back on. Um, now, that can create long-term memories. Unfortunately, in professional sport, we think about the last game. Our memory goes back about three months, maybe two months. And you've got to give those long-term memories to people. So with that auditing and those memories that are recorded, you can create a long-term memory. You can go, geez, look what was happening three years ago. Now look what's happening. Nobody's memory can cope with that. So that helps change the culture. Now I'm talking mainly on a, on a, on a committee coaching point of view to start with. Um, and we don't do enough, I think, in the industry of, of education and promotion to decision makers. Uh, we spend a lot of time on the train with the team in the session. And, and thankfully, with, with, with a, a manager's position like me, I can do those on behalf of the conditioners, nutritionists, physios, doctors, etc., and show the good work that they do with the coaches, with the decision makers. And then that builds the culture, the understanding, the buy-in, as, as, as you say. Um, now, with players, I'm going to hand that baton back to the conditioners and the physios and back to that saying, Mullanogos Chukishi, and that big brother relationship. And my, my, my pillars, my rules of thumb for dealing with those young players is listen to them, uh, encourage them to talk, and respect them. So with children, uh, my guide to the conditioners is be comfortable with the chaos and guide them through the next challenge and the next level. With adolescents, uh, it's important to have rules and, and repercussions. And you've got to be a bit more disciplined there at that high hormonal stage where they can be a little bit nuts at 13, a little bit cheeky. It's their first time in a in a team environment with, with a support team and they've got to understand the rules and there's got to be a bit more disciplinarian to it without being nasty to the young players. And then at young adults, it totally changes again. You're going to turn them into adults. So you've got to teach them how to be adults and you let them be part of the process and you go back to the listening, respect, encourage them to talk. And that helps the players get on board. So... Professional sport, especially soccer, can be quite challenging for the players. A lot of pressure from the parents, the agents, the coaches, the crowds. So for the culture to be embraced of strength and conditioning, if we praise them, be the bigger brother, be that support, that got them on side very quickly, very early. And then now that we've been doing it for five years, the under-12s are the under-18s now, and they don't know any different. Strength and conditioning is normal. It's what we do, it's what we know, it's what we understand and what we love. So it's as each year goes by, it gets more and more normal. And then professional sports can be high pressure and there can be conflict into it. 
So there is a, another saying I use, and it's by uh, Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. And it, he says, don't wrestle pigs. Well, you get dirty, and as well as that, the pigs like it. So the whole department we know, not to get into that row, not to get into that verbal disagreement, high emotional state. Uh, if a person doesn't want to listen, he doesn't want to listen. Don't go wrestling with pigs. You just get dirty, and the pig likes it. So that avoids us from those conflicts that doesn't lead on to anything good. And we follow the uh, sayings we do, like kill people with kindness. And the current one, because we're so far down the line, is there's no excuses. We have wonderful facilities, high number of good quality uh, staff, player buy-in, smart coaches. There's no excuses now. We've just got to keep on producing players and doing the work. So there's another long-winded one about about culture and, and, and changing it. Um, with a few little pillars. No, it's awesome. It's, it's great. It, it really is. This. It's a yeah. It's a really nice look into into how you've gone about doing what you're doing within within the club and and in the academy. And uh, um, I think I think there's a lot of things you can take out of that immediately. Like I'm I'm 100. I'm going to steal that uh, to most of the coaches I talk talk to in the next or whenever I start working with them again. Um, Will be like, hey, who who were your influences? What what? Because uh, I can name my influences, you know what I mean, and my influences say from a SNC side of things, and from maybe a track and field side of things, and and from a rugby union side of things. I can name people that influence me and kind of shape my thinking. And you've made me really really think about why is that important to understand the people you're working with influences and how they talk about things, um, how how they relate to things and. And just conceptually how they think about things. So no, it's it's, it's really neat. Um, and kill them with kindness. And I'll have to get you to uh, to actually send me the um, the that that Irish saying by email. Uh, send, oh send sure, me, yeah, 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 yeah. Send me that, and I'll uh, I'll make sure I put it up. It'll be great, um, mate. So the next thing I want to touch on, and and I think you've you've kind of alluded to this, is is that maybe sometimes. Um, being with a first team or being with a pro team can be a young man's game um, in terms of um, like it's high pressure stakes and, and also you travel a lot, things like that. And, and you also need very experienced people um, that have maybe been through that situation to, to hit up your academies and, and to make sure that the next generation of players coming through uh, um, are going to be where you want them to be. But also those people have to know like their role and be really comfortable with that. And it's normally a person that's been there, done, done that, they're comfortable in their own skin and, and, the, and the very, very appropriate for that type of role. Tell us about sort of like the work-life balance that you think is really important for SNC coaches. Um, and then what next after you, after you become a professional SNC coach? Like, do you look for an academy position eventually? Um, yeah. Um, or do you do you what type of education do you do? Where do you go from there? So that work life balance and that sort of career progression, what what you'd like to see and how you'd think about it? Sure. Um, so first of all, work life balance. Um, yeah, they're closely related the two things, but I, I I that really struck. It's always been a strong belief in in myself that it's it's important. It's hugely beneficial. But I, I was I was surprised maybe a year and a half ago 
there was there was a big discussion in the in the strength and conditioning community. Stuart McMillan put up um, the term work-life balance should be disbanded, and people were saying things like, "Yeah, you've got to have a hundred percent commitment, and your family life is going to lose out if you're with a high-level top-level sport." No, no, Stuart does some excellent um, discussion topics and, and education material. But I wholeheartedly disagreed with him on that one. And I replied to him. He didn't reply back, unfortunately. No, he's a busy man. And I said, no, I want you to drive this on further. And I was presenting at the UKSEA conference. And I made that point. And I made the point how it was so important because you get so much back from it. It's our job to energize people. It's our job to be creative. It's our job to, to avoid conflict. And it's our job to be positive. And you can't if you've got a poor work-life balance. You can be so much more productive when you do. And that's really struck a chord with a lot of people at the UKSA conference. Loads of people come up to me and we discussed it in detail. And, and I think it's the, something the industry is crying out for. And I think it's something the industry realizes the benefits are there once it's in place. So the way I put it is, um, if you're working in the industry, yeah, it is going to be higher than normal hours. You are going to work five and a half days a week, around 45 hours. That's what I think is really the ideal. I'm not saying that's what happens with people. Usually it's a lot more. And that extra half day, you're going to be at a game. You're going to really enjoy the game. Um, you shouldn't be in the job if you don't. But unfortunately, too many of our, 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 our friends and colleagues do six, seven plus days in a row, uh, 60 hours a week. Now, I think that kills energizing ability, kills creativity, kills positivity and, and increases uh, conflict. And there will be high and low periods through the year and they should be planned and periodized just like the player. But it should average out at a good, steady week that isn't too much. And, and people shouldn't be busy fools that we should, should be productive and smart. And it can be a secret, we secret weapon, I think. Um, but that's my little rant on that one. But, but what's next? That's really important. Yeah, there, there is the, the option to, after a, a period of time with adult teams, and I think it should happen more, is step back into academy and be a manager and, and uh, add your experience to that. Just like people like Dave Fagan in Leinster Rugby, uh, who worked with Leinster in Heineken Cup finals and so on, and and Fergal O'Callaghan in Munster rugby, who worked, who was with Munster when they won two Heineken Cup. Now they're developing the next generation of of Irish rugby players, and it's something I don't see that often, but something that could be very useful. But but more importantly, our, our industry is very young. Um, the strength and conditioning in Ireland has only been a proper job since the nineties. Other countries, maybe the 80s, I know it goes back further than that, but as a, as a committed career positions uh, in number, our industry is young. And then I'm, I'm, I'm looking out over at people in conferences and out in the community and you get to 40 and things begin to slow down. And then you get to 50 and, ooh, are you going to be out on the pitch running around when you're 50? If you're very better, maybe, yeah. Um, but not everybody has his energy and his, his, his ability to keep going. So we got a plan for the future, um, people in our industry. And there is some very nice jobs out there, heads of performance jobs, uh, educator jobs. So those heads of performance jobs could go to anyone. 
uh, a physio, a doctor, a psych, a conditioner. And I think us as conditioners are, are the prime position for it. Now, it should go to the best person. But when people are in their 20s and 30s, they should start those management courses on time management, managing conflict, uh, giving appraisals. They should find a mentor who is a manager already and learn from him and get ready, do everything they can to get those high-performance positions. And with that comes the added benefit of a good pay scale, but progression. And then you share your, your, your knowledge with younger coaches, physios. Um, you use those people skills you've developed in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s by managing a department, a totally different job. But so you have to prepare for that totally different job. And then uh, another area where our industry can benefit is a lot of times the degree programs, master programs are, are delivered by academics and they have a place, obviously. But I think a larger proportion should be practitioners. So people like Ian Jeffries, who is a brilliant uh, practitioner, educator, he's educating people in the University of South Wales. People like Liam Hennessy, my current mentor and my old boss, he's educating people in Ireland in Satanta College. That's what people in the 20s, 30s, 40s could be aiming for as the progression in their career, as a longevity in their career, and sharing their knowledge with people and the, and the industry growing through time. So I think they're good windows of opportunity for um, young strength conditioners, sports scientists. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's a lot of things that resonated with me there. There's, um, like even just the irony of uh, we program athletes to have rest, you know what I mean? We, we know that uh, you need rest for success. Um, it's, yeah. it's adaptation. It's 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 that that's that's the basis of strength and conditioning. But we don't do that ourselves. And if it was, it was maybe in some positions, it's not there. Um, and enthusiasm is such a vital component of uh, of team sports, anyway. Um, and yeah. being being a guy that people want to be around, um, being a guy that people want to come in and get excited with when they get into the gym. Like you can have mm. the best. The best program in the world. It won't matter if you're uh, if you're as dull as dog shit. You know what I mean. You're you won't be uh, that, that good to be around. And, and oh, probably we're, we're allowed to use bad words, are we? Oh mate, it's Australia. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure. I was on my best. I was on my best behaviour. Thank, thank, thank Christ for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, mate, you're Irish too, so I'm I'm sure there would have been some good ones come come out there. But um, you, you know what I mean. It's it's that type of that type of enthusiasm and that type of. Uh, Getting people excited, yes. that, that's one of the great things about the job. Um, uh, and, and you have to have some type of rest and downtime to be able to do that consistently over time. Mm. Um, maybe you can do it for a year, three years, whatever, without any break, but uh, eventually it'll catch up to you. I, I, you're dead right. One, one session where you're buzzing, the player's buzzing, and you're creative is worth 10 sessions where you're just going through the motions. 100%. Hundred percent, no, mate, and uh, that's um, yeah, that work plus rest equals success. You've you've it's 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 got to be done from a from a professional point of view as well, um, and it's instituted in top business places as well. You know what I mean, like uh, yeah, sleep pods and Google and and that sort of thing. So uh, I don't see any reason why it can't be a part of the strength conditioning or even support services, coaching services part in, in sport. Yeah, hundred um, percent. 
Mate, um, we're going to go on to some little quickfire questions. Um, some of these we might have already talked about and answered in the discussion so far, and um, and uh, but you can elaborate if you want to. That can be one-word answers. Um, we and just just fire away um, with whatever comes to mind. Uh, but what's the best lesson? This is the first one. What's the best lesson you've been taught or you've learned had happened to you on the job? Um. Yeah, taught again by my mentor. So he always has this saying, methods are many, but principles are few. Methods come and go, but principles never do. So he was a good mentor because he never told me the answer to any questions I asked him. But that phrase came up a lot. So if I'm to evaluate the next new toy that's out there trying to be sold to us strength conditioners, I always go back to that principle. And I think that works well. And I think that was the, one of the best lessons he's given me, for sure. Cool, 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 cool. Mate, okay, next one, sort of on the same lines. What's one thing you've got from a seminar or a lecture and just been able to apply it immediately that you've just gone, boom, I can use this tomorrow? Like Name the thing that just springs to mind like that. Oh, yeah, it's... Um, you must treat victory and defeat the same. Um, you always stick to the long-term plan, and a result on a Saturday will, will steer the ship slightly left or sh- slightly right. But you don't get too emotional about a good win, or you don't get too depressed about a bad loss. You treat them the same. You're on that long-term journey. Now, this may be academy-specific. It's, it's, it's easy for an academy person to say that, where there's not the pressures of, of, of winning the league and staying in the league. But... That's a, a, a good thing I've learned from, from workshopping with, with conditioners and experienced conditioners in the past. And uh, it stops the knee-jerk reactions. It stops the bad decisions. It's, you should have a plan in place already, irrespective of one bad kick on a Saturday or, or, or bad performance. Um, but a number of bad performance, obviously, will steer the ship slightly left or slightly right or a good performance. Mm. Oh, it's something cool. I've picked up. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Mate, bit of humble pie now. What springs to mind when you, uh, uh, when you think of a time when you, you've made a mistake, where things haven't quite gone to plan? What would be the first thing that goes, oh, that was, that was a real blew up. I, I, I didn't want that to happen, or you know what I mean? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so in the, in the early noughties, um, I was with a professional team. Um, a staff member left, a new staff member came in. We had all these great ideas. We ramped up the um, lower body exercises in the preseason. Uh, we were excited about a new world. There was a lot of good ideas floating around. It, it was too big of a change and too little of a time. And that really stuck with me since because the injuries increased. We lost development time. This was with an adult professional team at the moment with competition coming up. And ever since then, it just resonates in my head. Don't make too big of a change too quick or it's going to go wrong. So that really ramped home with me. And then in the other area of communication, uh, not keeping people in the loop, people you trust, people you respect. Don't go off on a, on a, on a, on a tangent uh, I, I started a project without keeping my my boss in the loop with a simple conversation, a simple 
CC into an email. Um, he was my boss because he was wiser than me. He would have spotted the flaw in it. There was the flaw. It crashed. He had to come in late. He was disappointed with me. So, yeah, those two things. Don't make too big of a change too quickly. And always run thing, things by people as a sounding board. Keep people in the loop, like your line manager, like your, your head coach, like your boss, for the sake of one conversation. Yeah, great, great. And uh, obviously I ask that not to, uh, not to uh, um, anything untoward, but it's, uh, you learn from your mistakes and it's, it's always interesting. Oh, you do, you do. Well, well when, you're, when you're called the injury devil, uh, you, you learn from that. So that was the nickname the players gave me during that period. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to be the injury devil anymore. So yeah, you learn pretty quickly from the players. They, they are very clever, clever players sure. and young players. They know exactly what's going on. Right on, right on. Mate, um, next one, what, what's the best performance? And, and S&C coaches love this. We had beers about it and we chat about it in the, in the bar. And what's the best performance that springs to mind um, that you've seen or been part of in a training session for starters and then as a second part in a game. And it can be rugby or football, um, like something where you go, holy, holy crap, that was, that was amazing. You know what I mean? How did he do that, uh, that type of situation? Oh, yeah, the training one's easy. So long time ago with the professional team, I was working with Connor Rugby, and there was a player called Johnny O'Connor, and I was doing, probably would be called old school now at this stage. We, we went to an area beside the sea in Galway. It was a large green area with lots of hills of different gradients. I brought my bike. Uh, I brought the guys on, on tempo runs or heart leg runs, whatever you'd call it. They had to keep pace with me on the bike. Um, and Johnny passed me out. And I couldn't keep up with Johnny. And he was that type of player. He's impossible to tire. And I just couldn't believe it that he could run faster and longer than me on a bike in hills. Mm. Now, what led on from Johnny, he went on to be an international rugby player. He went to Wasps. Uh, he won Heineken Cups. Uh, but right now, he is a strength conditioner. And he did his degree while he was playing. And he's working with Connacht Rugby. And he, he, he worked in Arsenal as well as an intern. So when he finished his professional rugby career, he... Did his degree during his career, interned with Connacht, and is now a brilliant <laughs> conditioner with uh, Connacht Rugby. So, but I could always see that in him, a brilliant trainer, and that was that was unbelievable uh, at that moment. And then performance uh, in a game. Well, the best sport that's out there, the only amateur sport left in the world that anyone bothers going to watch, um, is Gaelic football. And there's a guy called Michael Meehan. And it was an under-21 All-Ireland. He won it for Galway. Um, five goals were scored. Him and Sean Armstrong. Terrible twins, they were called. And that was fantastic to watch. Yeah, right, right. Isn't that good? I, I, love, I loved Ireland and the, uh, just the passion they had for that, for like hurling and Gaelic football, your GAA. Mm. Like it's uh, it's uh, so cool, and I, I actually got given a uh, a hurling stick and a uh, a hurley while I was there, and made made the practice. I, I must say they they got me out there and Good. had me hitting balls <laughs> against the wall and stuff like that. Um, mate, uh, any books or courses you recommend um, that that you'd say, hey, go and do this um, first off the bat. 
um, yeah, so the old books are the best books. So I'm going to pull out a few classics here. Um, Dietrich Care, 1969, Principles of Sport Training. You can find a few old copies out there on Amazon. And it's amazing to look back at East Germany's development of players in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And you'd be surprised how many answers to questions are in history. Then uh, Carmelo Bosco. He's passed away, God rest him. And his, his book from 1982, um, Stretch, Shortening Cycle in, in Skeletal Muscle Function. So it's, it's a huge buzz at the moment. Velocity-based training. There's brilliant experts out there. I like Dan Baker, etc. But this guy, this guy was the, the original and the best. Um, so it's, it's great to look back over his work. Um, conditioners out there, um, uh, online, you can actually do a course, World Rugby, Strength Conditioning Level 1 and Level 2, pretty much for free online. And you get a, a, a cert and the whole lot. And the content's reasonably good. I had a little contribution to it, so that's a bit um, egotistical of me. But uh, it's free. It's online. The modules are good. Liam Hennessy wrote the vast majority of it. And I think it's very good. Um, and any, any content by, by Liam Hennessy, really, uh, and Satantic College, his, his courses, his, his content is, is superb. I must say. Great, great. You heard it here first, the Tenth College in uh, it's in Ireland, right? Is it Dublin? It, it, it is, but it's 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 yeah. worldwide. Uh, it's online based. It's it's the future education, blended learning, that that style um, for cool. people that are working and so on. But I'm I'm not here to plug that now. Let's let's keep nah, going. Pl- plug away, and we'll ask them for a sponsorship at the end of the episode. Oh, dead right. <laughs> I'm just joking, just joking, <laughs> mate. Um, it, look, it's 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 been wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, having you on. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm I'm sure everyone's going to really enjoy this. Um, how do how do people if they want to know more about what you do, um, or want to hear more of your opinions on things, or or get more information about you? What what are the best things? Obviously, you're coming to the ACA conference. Uh, you're going to be speaking there. Um, are you on I, Twitter I or? No, no, I was on Twitter, um, and it ended up too much time. Sure, and I'm very opinionated, and I only get in trouble, so I stepped off that. Um, um, I, I, I'm on LinkedIn if people want to to ask a question for sure. Um, but I'll be at the conference. I'll be there for the full uh, period of it. Uh, I really enjoy conferences. I prefer the 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 uh, breaks. I prefer the the. The, the bar afterwards and I'm I love chatting about any topic I'll be presenting uh, and I'll share some information but I'm going there to learn I'm going there for the experience I can't wait to, to spend some time with Dan Baker we had great fun at the UKSA conference so I, I'm in training for the Australian one sure sure <laughs> you, you need to be in training for Dan Baker he's um he's a force of nature <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, mate, good luck to you is all I can say. Good luck to you. You didn't need to be fast or very stout. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> oh, you, you got to pick your battles. Just like you said, you got to pick your battles and, and know, when to, uh, know when to be fast or know when to be stout. Sure. Mate, so, yeah, look, it's been wonderful. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. No, great, great to chat. Thank you. So if you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, thank you very much. 
If you did want to check out more about theirs, I highly recommend that Strength and Conditioning Journal article. That's a great one to describe or to get a bigger look at what they're doing over there at Arsenal. Also get along to the ASCA, Australian Strength and Conditioning Association's conference at the end of the year. It's down at the Olympic Park in Sydney. It's going to be a great one, not just theirs, but some really other good speakers that will be there at that conference. Um, Before I sign off, please rate this podcast uh, in your whatever vehicle you listen to it in, whether it's in iTunes or SoundCloud. Give it a five-star rating. That would be awesome. Also, if you're not a member of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association and you're listening to this, please consider becoming a member. It's a great organization. They put on the conferences. They put on these podcasts. There's journals. And there's obviously also the certifications, the level ones and twos that are really, really great. So that's it for today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the listening end of this podcast. We've got some great speakers coming up uh, that we'll have on future podcasts and some really cool initiatives there. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.